0: Speech Pathology Australia acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia, and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community, and acknowledge that sovereignty was never seated. Hello, and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors.
1: Hi there, it's Annika, and thank you for tuning into this week's Speak Up conversation. Picture this. You're an incredibly hardworking, committed speech pathologist. You go above and beyond for your clients and are always open to feedback to improve your service delivery. One morning, you turn on your computer and boom, there it is, a one-star Google review about you and your service with some fairly negative scathing words. Your stomach drops, your head starts spinning, why would someone do this and what can you do about it? To help us reflect upon situations such as this and all things online reviews, I'm really delighted to be chatting to Dr Renato El Piano today. Ren is co-founder of Ladybug House, a multidisciplinary private practice based in Melbourne and on the Gold Coast, and is director of the Little Bugs Foundation, a charity providing assessment and intervention to children with speech and language disorders in socio-economically disadvantaged communities. He has also recently completed his Doctor of Business Administration looking at the adoption of online rating systems for health professionals. Thank you so much for joining me today, Ren.
2: It's been great to join you, Annika, and I really appreciate to be able to give a, a different perspective to speech pathologists, which is traditionally clinical based research rather than sort of business discipline research.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say what fascinating research you have actually completed. I'm really looking forward to exploring it with you, Ren. So I guess I'd like to start by just asking you why you initially decided to research online rating systems for health professionals?
2: Yeah, good question. I guess when I started the research journey in 2013, I could see how online ratings were impacting retail businesses, for example. You know, at the same time, we kicked off Ladybug House with my partner and speech pathologist wife, Maria. And we were really curious about what effects would those online ratings potentially have with health in the health profession. Um, and when I started to dig a little bit deeper and started to look at literature reviews, um, I couldn't find a lot of research that examined that space, especially for healthcare professionals, let alone for allied health professionals. A lot of the research was focused in on medical doctors, so general practitioners and specialists. And there wasn't a lot written about speech pathologists or any other allied health professionals. And that that was the gap I wanted to fill. And I wanted to understand a little bit more about that space.
1: Wow, that sounds so interesting. And I know part of your research was really looking back throughout history. And I'm really fascinated to know what you found out about what people have thought about health professionals throughout history.
2: Yeah, well, it's been really interesting. There's been a, a significant change in the healthcare industry in terms of how the professions perceived. Initially, it's always been um, perceived as a top-down approach um, where quality of the care was sort of determined by the doctor or the general practitioner. And now what we're starting to see is this consumer movement. It's moving to a bottom-up approach where the patient's becoming more like a consumer than a passive recipient of healthcare. We're challenging and we're questioning, you know, everything, and health professionals is one of those as well. And I guess it, I need to take you back in a bit of a, a journey, so bear with me. Um, no, it please really, do. It really started back in... Post World War II, where it was labeled as the golden age of doctoring, where the medical profession achieved professional dominance. They were able to control their own scope of work. And this was reinforced by governments with simple things like legislating that if you weren't qualified in accordance with the medical profession set criteria, that you could not be practicing as a medical doctor or whatever the discipline was. So they really had a lot of the power and they drew a lot of respect. There was a lot of altruism. They were really doing it for the right reasons and what happened then though things started to change in the 60s and the next three decades the profession started to corporatize so people were going into the profession not because they wanted to help people necessarily but they could also see a financial return and as soon as corporate start to get involved you start to get this cynicism and what patients started to do was go well hold on you're not doing it I think for the right reasons and I might start to get a second opinion so that was starting to become predominant in the '80s, where People were getting second opinions and didn't trust doctors as much because they thought they were doing it for the wrong reasons. And a lot of this was because um, a, a sort of a factor called information asymmetry, which is the doctor has a lot more information than the patient. And the patient cannot judge or be in a position to judge the quality or service of the work that the doctor was doing. So they're really at the at the hands of the doctor. Mm. And I guess then that led into the next sort of phase or the next stage where the internet created the next major shift. Well, we all know it provides easy access to all sorts of information. And healthcare is probably one of those areas where people always do, you know, they doctor Google and they look up what their symptoms are. And a lot of people do that before they go see a doctor. And what this started to do, it started to break down what I call that information asymmetry between the health professional and the patient. So they're starting to become empowered because they had access to information. And on top of this, probably in the last decade, we had a lot of institutions come out and start to talk about a patient-centric care model, where the patient was at the center of care rather than the doctor and what they thought they prescribed. So the World Healthcare Organization came out with that statement in 2015, where they said, one of our objectives is to have a more patient-centric model of healthcare. And there's the Institute of Medicine, which is a large organization in the US, an institution, professional associations who come out and also said, you know, one of their six main objectives is to have patient-centric care. And what was interesting was you had all this change happening where it was becoming more consumer-focused. So what did the medical profession come out? In 2016, the Australian Medical Association, one the president at the time came out and said, um, posting clinical outcomes of treatment online could result in reduced access to care. So what was really interesting was you had this consumer and institutional movement going towards, you know, bottom-up approach, and you had, you know, at least general practitioners and medical doctors resisting that change. Mm. And their whole emphasis was, well, you can't possibly judge the service quality because you don't have the skills or the knowledge to do so. And I think they were slightly missing the point. It's not just about the clinical outcome. It was about how they were treated as part of that. Mm -hmm. So this this whole movement started to change from, I just need the thing that's going to fix me to, I want to be treated like a human and be treated with respect, not just another, you know, patient that you put through another number. So that, that was sort of the, the whole change in evaluation. So it went from no evaluation to imp- empowering consumers to, to have that evaluation. So now. You know, healthcare services are just like any other service; they they can be evaluated. There's enough information out there to do it. You'll still get resistance from the medical profession, though. Absolutely, mm. still- and as you
1: said, sorry, and as you said too, about the um, rise of the internet alongside all of that makes um, a, a consumer's ability to make those ratings so much easier and more visible to such a huge number of people so all of that is kind of aligning with these um, shifts at the same time isn't it
2: yeah and so when they talk about empowering consumers and making sorry empowering patients um, they're also empowering them in a couple of ways one is to have a voice and that was really important for the world World health organization that they did have a voice and their reach and their platforms uh, everything else became a lot more accessible and it was easier to create that empowerment environment
1: Mm. so looking I guess at now, what do consumers of allied health services base their ratings on?
2: Yeah, well, it's really interesting, and it really depends on the type of allied healthcare professional. And although consumers have a lot more information about different types of procedures or different types of services, um, there's really a split between those services that have a high credence value, which means the patients cannot ascertain the quality um, of the medical service before or after the procedure. And an example might be, um, dare I say, psychology, you don't know if that's had an immediate effect or you might not know if that's had an effect at all. So you're left judging, hold on, did that therapy work or is it Mm. just something that I was growing into? So when it comes to um, those sorts of high credence type services, what patients are actually or consumers are judging is everything else that surrounds it other than the clinical service. So Mm -hmm. were they nice to me? Did they treat me with respect? Did the admin people treat me with respect and get the appointment that I wanted. Um, Was the waiting room clean? You know, all those sorts of things Mm -hmm. that surround the service other than the service themselves. However, in other types of services in healthcare, and I guess the prominent example, although not allied health where they can judge and what they do judge is in cosmetic surgery, for example, they can judge whether or not, you know, your nose job worked out or it didn't. So it's, they are judging clinical outcomes where it's obvious, but where, the services of high credence value and they can't possibly judge, they're judging everything around it.
1: Mm, How interesting. If I could narrow it down to speech pathology specifically, Ren, do we know what people value specifically in a speech pathologist?
2: I guess there's a lot of anecdotal evidence about what that might be. I, I won't comment on that. What I found difficult in my research was to actually find examples of surveys or research that investigated what patients thought of speech pathologists there was probably one survey in a hospital setting Mm -hmm. um based overseas where they did do that research but i guess what i would say is uh, speech pathology is probably high in credence values although it varies within the discipline as well like stuttering you know if it works or it doesn't but a lot of the other things sort of develop over time and Mm -hmm. so it would be one of those things where they're judging you know were they nice to me did they engage in pediatrics with my child were they friendly to my child And we've had examples in our clinic where we've got the same two therapists, they're doing the same therapy, the only thing that was different was their personalities, and they would gravitate away from the personality that didn't match or feel that their child gelled with. So a lot of the time, it is not about the actual therapy that they're delivering, it's about everything around it, including, you know, administration and any other services that are provided around that.
1: Mm, That's really hard, isn't it, when it comes down to personality, because we certainly know that... um, your personality is going to work really well with some families and some clients but perhaps not so much with others and and that's just such a huge subjective thing to be um, rated on isn't it
2: yeah and unfortunately that that comes through and there's not a lot you can do about it unfortunately
1: yeah so what might trigger a consumer to actually make for instance an online rating to take that effort to open up their laptop to sit down to actually type in um, a whole little paragraph of their thoughts what sort of triggers them to get to that point
2: I guess it's either great service or very poor service. Um, the literature is clear, though, that a lot of the ratings that are published are positive reviews, and that's internationally. So that's one thing that you sort of couldn't challenge to say most reviews are negative. And a lot of health professionals might feel that way, but that's certainly not what the evidence is telling us. So the average ratings are like 4.5. Unfortunately, what happens is when it's a negative review, it has a much more significant impact than a positive review. And I think if I dig deeper and look at what causes a negative review, obviously it's a service failure in some form or another, but it goes back to that information asymmetry that I was talking about earlier. It's when they don't know what to expect and their expectations are different to the, in this example to the speech pathologist. So what's really important is not only do you explain what you're doing but why you're doing it as well. And that's not only the clinical side of things, it's also any other... Um, administration that sits around it it might be your cancellation policies it might be how you're treated on the wait list it could be how you charge for fees what do you charge for reports is that extra so negative ratings usually are a result of a misunderstanding in terms of what their expectations were or at least a mismatch between what you delivered and what they expected to be delivered but like i said that could be overcome just by increasing the amount of transparency and it mm-hmm. sort of goes against the grain of a lot of healthcare professionals they think they are the experts in the field But what you want to be able to do to improve that service experience is be able to communicate why you're doing it Mm. and that's really important
1: yeah and it's not just the clinical part of that as you said it's the admin part and i'm really interested ren because i know that you do run a private practice what does your private practice actually do then to sort of um, preempt some of these mismatches
2: yeah good question so what we try to do up front is rather than spend half an hour on the phone when we're doing an intake is just take some basic details And then in our intake form, we outline all those expectations that we could possibly communicate that would be understood. So we let them know what type of appointments we do, whether they're ongoing or whether they're just the once-off appointments, the cost of those appointments, what the cancellation policy is, how we expect the relationship to work. And the example uh, is really dear to my heart is when we did get a really scathing review. When I went back and dug down to understand why, essentially it was a mismatch between um, the the two parents, they were divorced. We were seeing a child. The dad had an expectation. He was happy with the service he was getting. He thought that that was the end of the therapy. We inadvertently had um, provided a report request for the mum, which she used that report to go to child support and get more maintenance to pay for more therapy where the dad didn't think there was more therapy. So what had happened was the parents weren't in alignment. So in our form now, we say, do both parents agree on therapy for their child. And if they don't, we won't take them on. So it's about also scaling some of those questions to decide whether you'll take them on as a patient. Because if you don't ask those hard questions up front, that mismatch will just be pushed down towards another part. And what we also do, and this is a requirement, I guess, for a lot of people who are seeing NDIS clients, is we have a service agreement. So once they start the therapy, we list out the goals that we're working to, as well as then reinforcing all the other policies around We'll see your child fortnightly. This is the cancellation policy. This is what we'll do for you. This is what you can do for us. On the actual therapy side, what we ask our clinicians to do is make sure that when they are providing an activity, they explain what they're doing. Because when I was sitting in the weight in the um, in the weight room, being in reception for like six years of the business's life at the time, all I'd hear is people jumping on trampolines or having lots of fun. Parents need to know you're not playing a game or at least why you're playing that game. Like Pop-Up Pirate's probably one of the most popular (laughs) games. And there's reasons and clinical reasons why you're doing that, whether it be whatever communication objective you need to achieve, but you need to explain that to the parent or to whoever that you're seeing. You need to explain why you're doing so they can understand the logic. And that reduces that information asymmetry. So there's some of the things. So there's things you can do at the start and things during the, the sort of whole therapeutic sort of journey.
1: And I also believe that you do ask for feedback formally after every session. Is that correct?
2: So what, what we do is to try to minimise that information asymmetry or at least understand if there has been a, a service missed delivery is when we send off a receipt for their services, we um, have a link in there to provide um, feedback on that service, whether it be good or bad. And what we've done is we have actually used a third party to outsource that feedback to. So rather than just give us a rating, we ask for a story, how it would have benefited you or how it didn't benefit you so we can actually make improvements. So the aim is to collect feedback but then to be able to action that feedback to make the the experience better for both clinician and for the parent or for the, the patient as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I know we're sort of thinking in a private practice context at the moment, Ren. but would you have any suggestions maybe for speech pathologists that are working, I don't know, in a hospital or other um, clinical environments in regards to what they might be able to do?
2: It's a tricky one when you're in a larger organisation because you don't have the flexibility. But a lot of these organisations are now um, asking for feedback as part of that service delivery. So that's already happening. I guess what a clinician could do is just ask, how did that session go? Could we have done anything differently? Did you understand what I was actually doing as part of that session? We'd be able to take home and implement some of the things I did. So some simple questions at the end. Um, and sometimes it's not even up to the clinician. What's really interesting is, is that the patient-clinician relationship is a borderline a friendship, and this is really difficult for therapists. They're more likely to give feedback to the um, admin assistant in reception than they would the actual clinician themselves so sometimes it's the receptionist who probably needs to ask how did that session go and I've done that before and you get a feel because you even ask the child how did you how did you feel in that session did you have good fun and you'd get a reaction from the child or the parent as well and so Mm -hmm. just picking up on those cues to be able to take that and perhaps extract more feedback from the parent in Mm -hmm. another way.
1: Yeah that's a great idea so using those people and those um, I guess uh, admin type people that work around us to be able to take on some of that role that's a, likely, a really good suggestion
2: correct and they're more likely to provide feedback to that neutral third party because
1: yeah
2: from a, um, a patient perspective they want to maintain that that close working relationship and that, that's what we see in the clinic all the time so they don't want to upset the clinician but mm-hmm. they're happy to provide feedback out somewhere else
1: yeah that makes sense doesn't it So what kind of platforms, Ren, did you sort of find that people were actually rating speech pathologists on? I mean, I know Google um, is quite common and you can click on Google for anything these days and the rating for that particular service will come up. But are there other places that consumers are making ratings that we should look out for?
2: Yeah, really interesting question, because if you look at the history of online review platforms for health professionals, it started back in the late 2000s, where you had dedicated platforms, especially in the US. There was one called healthgrades.com and RateMD. And they they still have got a significant influence. Um, And also in the UK, there's one that was run by the government called NHS Choices, where they gave the opportunity to all patients to rate their doctors. Now, what's happened in Australia, sorry, what's happened in Australia is in about 2015, there was a platform called White Coat. And that was run mm-hmm. by an insurance company so you can provide feedback on health professionals. But what I've seen in the last two to three years is Google, my business, has just dominated the space mm. because they have integrated into search. So if you search a doctor, up will come their rating. And that's yeah. what I've seen sort of become the sort of you know Trojan horse. They've used uh, search and then bolted on this other business for them, which is in the review sites. In the US, I think... Um, not only do they have Google My Business, but they also have Yelp, which is a a rating site. And what's interesting is it's not just for health professionals. It covers all businesses. So what you've seen is this move from the dedicated platform to integration into all businesses, not just one. Mm.
1: So what kind of impact, Ren, have you noticed um, a negative online review might have on a speech pathologist? And I guess I'm thinking sort of personally as well as professionally.
2: I think um, it's reputational damage, um, mm. especially if it stays out there in that particular review. So what what happens is there's a couple of elements to that reputational damage. There's one to the business itself, which is consumers are, are looking at Google uh, for reviews and they're saying, well, hold on, that's only a three-star review. I'm not going to go there. I'll choose the one with four. So there's a, a potential reju- reduction in demand for services. But the other problem as well is it demoralises staff as well. They think, well, hold on, I must have contributed to that review. It's a judgement on my personal performance, how will I cope? So you've also got this morale aspect to it, which you need to address. And the third thing is for new staff who are potentially wanting to look to work for you, of course, they're going to do their homework and they'll look at, oh, hold on, these guys are not performing too, oh, well. there must be a bad culture or, or whatnot. So there's sort of like three elements that have an impact on reputational damage. And I guess it's been reflected in terms of how people have used reviews or how they've defended their reviews. I don't have an example in speech pathology, but I came across an example in my research where there's a dentist in Melbourne actually sued a patient over a one star review, which was unfounded. And he actually won that case. He won over $700,000 in defamation. To the contrary, there was, yeah, to the contrary, there was this um, cosmetic surgeon, which is. He's making the news at the moment especially with 60 minutes where he manipulated the reviews and gave himself or was able to facilitate five-star reviews to improve his position in terms of getting more clients now he's under investigation at the moment so you can see that whilst we may scoff at reviews they have an impact you know financial yeah both huge, ways.
1: huge impact right absolutely So what can we do then? So just say there is a negative online review about us or the service that we work for. What what can we actually do?
2: I guess there's a couple of different strategies. I guess for the first thing is you've got to look at the review in the context, which is someone's providing you feedback on either good service or some service uh, delivery failure. You need to understand what that is, and one of the things to do is try to contact that person, understand, look, understand the feedback. My apologies. Can you provide me more information? So what you want to do is dig a bit deeper because that feedback is valuable, whichever way. Now, if the patient's misunderstood what you've done and the review is completely false, well, that that in itself says something, that you're not communicating something properly to that patient. In terms of what you can do to prevent reputational damage, there's a couple of options. One is to respond to the review and say, take your feedback on board. Um, We've improved in that particular area. That no longer happens at this organisation. So you remain neutral. And you don't want to start to attack that person online It just becomes um, really um, difficult.
1: Messy, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Not good.
2: Yeah, and you you don't want to you don't want to be challenging patients because then people reading your review will think, "Well, will they do that to me as well?" The other the other thing you can do if you think that review is totally incorrect and coming from the wrong place is actually to engage a solicitor. There, the defamation laws are changing, and you'll have probably more success now if you engage a lawyer and say, "I have got this." bad review it's totally inaccurate it's not based on any sort of facts can you please draft a letter to the patient and have them remove the review you can either get a solicitor to do it or you can send that email yourself to have that review removed in my experience it's worked for me once where it was totally defamatory and it wasn't correct they removed the review in -hmm. another example i was going to take legal action but you need to judge that person it's difficult when the patient might not have english as their first language You might be aggravating the situation even more, so you want to be careful about who you challenge in the legal environment. But what you'd want to do is ask them to remove the review in the first instance and explain why. Mm.
1: Can I just touch on those changes to the defamation laws, Ren? Do you know much about that and what those changes are?
2: I I don't have a a great in-depth understanding of it. I know that did change the laws a little bit, but what's happened is because litigation in def like litigating in defamation overall is difficult because you need to prove loss. But the recent cases where health professionals have actually won their cases have strengthened the case law, which means solicitors are more confident that they'll win a case if they take that defamation action. And mm. there have been some successes where, in the federal court, the judges actually asked to uncover who the anonymous person was who provided the rating. So they've actually gone to Google. And in one case now, they're actually suing Google as well, who, even after requesting that they remove, review be removed they had not removed it so there's there's other options and I guess that that was the other option that you could take in terms of having the review removed if the person won't remove the review themselves you can actually ask Google to remove the review there's three little buttons next to the review or three little dots if you click on those you can report the review now what I've understood and this is anecdotal evidence is that um, more people you can get to report the review as fake the more likely Google are to look at it So that's just a little tip.
1: Okay, interesting.
2: So, yeah, I think people are becoming more hesitant now in writing reviews because they've heard on The Great Violent through Facebook that someone's been sued. So you see the headline, Mm -hmm. person sued for writing a fake review or writing a review, and people are starting to think twice now.
1: Yeah.
2: it probably probably
1: needed to happen.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and it probably won't stop them, though, providing a star review as opposed to a written review. They might still just give you that one star review, so you still need to be proactive in what you do.
0: Mm.
1: We're in a really interesting space, just in terms of the workforce everywhere at the moment, Ren, really. But in speech pathology, we know that there's a greater demand on speech pathology than what we can supply at the moment. But um, I'm really interested in your thoughts about what you think might happen over the next few years when perhaps that supply and demand equalises. Will that have any impact on any of this kind of rating kind of stuff we've been talking about?
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't have anything that sort of the literature can point to, but anecdotally from running the business, I can see that at the moment, people are just grateful for any type of appointment and they're more likely to accept service failures than they were in the past. Or Mm -hmm. if there's been an indiscretion, they're probably more forgiving and will approach you. And that's because they can see that the balance of power is in favour of the practitioner. Mm -hmm. As that starts to change and they've got more choice, I don't think they'll either be voting with their feet or they'll be voting online. I think they'll become more vocal in what they're doing or saying. I think that will be one of the major shifts that will start to happen Um, Mm. unless they change the defamation laws, but that's been a slow sort of slow burn.
1: Mm, Yeah, that's really interesting. Oh, that is just so fascinating, Ren, and um, I don't mean to uh, so abruptly change our topic of conversation because that's awesome, but I did really, really want to touch base with you about your charity before we finish up today, which is called the Little Bugs Foundation. Um, I'm just really interested in... um, when it got started, why it got started and and what direction it's taking.
2: Sure. So we kicked off the charity. It was officially registered in 2020, in December. And what we found was that the NDIS was providing lots of funding for those children who had a diagnosis. And we saw a lot of the larger organisations start to move into the NDIS space who would traditionally just provide services to all different types of those who are uh, in low socioeconomic, Uh, economic areas or socially disadvantaged. And so we thought, hold on, they're falling through the cracks. What we want to be able to do is provide some sort of um, support to those people because the research was telling us about 70% of children in the juvenile justice system have some sort of speech and language disorder. And we wanted to pick them up before they got to that point. So what we started to do is provide screenings. And this was through Ladybug House probably, you know, three or four years ago. And we found that we were picking up kids and they needed to be referred on. So we thought we can expand that program. We started the charity and we've now got a full-time employee. Her, her job is to um, provide screenings at no charge to, um, at the moment, we're in kindergartens and um, childcare centres in those areas which need it the most. And we provide those screenings and then if they require therapy, we'll give them a block of therapy. But part of the remit of the charity is also to educate parents and the caregivers as well to understand how to spot those disorders or what you can do to remedy those disorders or at least refer them on. We don't refer them on to anybody at Ladybug House. We just give them a list of people to search on at Spa, so we give them the link so they can go off and find their own provider. We don't provide services that sort of roll on. It's not a a commercial relationship. It's purely a separate business to Ladybug House. We hope to grow that even more, so we're looking to put on another two speech pathologists in that area and grow the business, but also look to do it up here in Queensland. We've been doing some um, screenings up here in Queensland, but we're just under-resourced at the moment.
1: Mm. So if speech pathologists, I guess, are interested in um, a little bit more about your charity or or even if they perhaps know of a family that just isn't able to access services because of um, social disadvantage, can they contact you somehow?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So if they just go to our website, littlebugs.org, So it's the word little and then bugs.org.au and there's some contact details there. They can send an email or make a phone call. We can certainly see what we can do to help them out.
1: Yeah, it sounds fantastic, Ren. It sounds like such a needed um, service and, yeah, well done for getting that started because that just sounds incredible and we obviously are all fully supportive of reducing inequities to our services and um, this sounds like a really great thing that you've set up, that's for sure.
2: Yeah, and I think what's really important is that whilst Um, quite a few children get access to the NDIS. There will be children who don't.
1: Mm. That's
2: what we try to um, fit into and, and close the gap on that.
1: Yeah, that's, that sounds awesome. Well, thank you so much. That's been such a wonderful chat today. Um, if I jump back to your research, it was yeah, it's just so unique and it's interesting, but it's also incredibly relevant, I think, to what we as speech pathologists deal with. And I know you mentioned at the top of the episode about um, this not being a clinical episode today, but I think it still has equal interest and importance to us because it is a real thing and, and we our consumers, as you said, have a voice and uh, we need to be aware of the ins and outs of that so thank you so much for sharing
2: thanks annika i think i can really start to see how patients are becoming consumers and this is a deliberate strategy especially from the ndis where they're giving the consumers the money to spend and training it like their own and they're wanting they're demanding higher service levels they're demanding a lot more things than they would have in the past so they're not like i said not, not passive recipients anymore
1: No, absolutely. Which is a good thing, right? It is a good thing. Yeah, but as you say, it's about um, being really transparent and being aware of those things to make sure that um, it doesn't get to a point where someone is doing a one-star Google review or what have you and being really aware that that's something people will do if there is that big breakdown in communication or a misunderstanding.
2: Be proactive and be transparent, yeah.
1: Yep, sounds good. Proactive and transparent. They're the take-homes today. <laughs> thank you so much, Ren. All the very, very best with everything um, that the remainder of 2022 brings you.
2: Thanks, Anna. It's been a pleasure.
1: And thank you so much, as always, for tuning in. Enjoy your week ahead and be sure to join us again next Wednesday. Bye.
0: We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.